Before we go any further, I'm going to ask Sarah to come up. Sarah Collins um, is working with Ozar House, and she's going to talk to us a little bit about some things that are going on there. So Sarah, why don't you come on up and share these. Good morning. Um, let's see. Most of you, a lot of you I know, but for those of you I don't know, my name is Sarah Collins. Um, I am the newest executive director at Ozar House. So. Um, I'm up here just real quick for a couple minutes this morning. Um, first of all, to say thank you. Um, if you are familiar with Azar House, um, you know we are the um, Pregnancy Resource Center here in the Valley. And um, y'all are wonderful supporters. <laughs> um, I don't know how else to say it. Thank you. Thank you for your contribution to our baby bottle campaign that we're just now wrapping up. Thank you for the way that you pray for us and that you think of us and give regularly. So thank you for that. If you're not familiar with Azar House, um, just real briefly what we do. Um, again, we're the, the Pregnancy Resource Center here in the Valley. Our main mission is to help men and women choose life for their unborn children. So we offer things like medical grade pregnancy tests, limited ultrasounds. Um, we also want to help those women and those men have life more abundantly. And one of the ways that we do that is we have an Earn While You Learn program um, where we sit with parents and we do parenting classes, they have the opportunity to kind of earn money or points. We, we call it money, but it's not cash money. <laughs> um, but they have the ability to earn money and then they can use that money to buy things that they need to make life a little bit easier um, for their children. So um, those are the main things we do. The other ministry we have that a lot of times we forget to mention, but um, we also offer just support for anyone who has suffered pregnancy loss, um, whether that is a recent pregnancy loss or whether that was a pregnancy loss from years ago. We want everyone to know that um, we are there, um, we have resources, and would love to stand with you and walk beside you as you find healing from that loss. So that's the main, thing of, main things of what we do. Um, I'm up here today, first of all, to thank you. Secondly, um, I want to make sure that everyone knows that you have an invitation. Um, our banquet is coming up on May 6th, so just a few weeks from now. Um, if you would, just RSVP, let us know to expect you. There's no cost to attend. It's a really fun night where all the Christians and, and other people that are supporting the Pregnancy Center come together. Um, we have dinner and a silent auction. We're going to have some wonderful live music and um, we have a personal testimonial. So if you're curious to know what we're about or just wanna support us further, um, we would really invite all of you to come out. Um, I do have, if you didn't get an invitation and you'd like to know more about how to RSVP, I think there's some flyers on the back table um, on your way out. Um, I also have information. Um, lastly, um, we are looking for volunteers. We are looking, we call them advocates, um, people that are willing to come, spend a couple hours a week um, being ready for God to use you to minister to someone. So if that's something you're interested, just seek me out. Um, I would love to talk to you and, and meet with you um, and just see if maybe our ministry would be a good fit for your time and talents. Um, I think that's mainly what I was up here for. I do have one prayer request. Um, they are trying really hard to open an abortion clinic in Casper. We don't do a lot of political things at Azar House. Um, that is not what we exist to do. But I do feel like I'm standing in front of a body of believers that would probably want to know that and would want to pray. Um, so if you would just pray, pray for the people of Casper, that they would be able to have their hearts touched, that they might stand up for their community. 
Um, pray for the people that are trying to open this clinic, however you feel led to pray. But I just feel like that's something that you might want to know. Um, it's scheduled to open in June, so prayer is of the essence <laughs> at this point. Yes? That's called the Circle of Hope. It is called the Circle of Hope. Mm -hmm. We need yeah. to pray that. Yes. So I, I can give you some information. They do have a website if you're curious to see what they're all about. But... Um, they stand in opposition to a lot of the things that, that we're trying to do. So, okay, I think that's all. Thank you. Thank Sarah. you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Sarah. As we um, consider that, let's make sure that we do look to the Lord and trust that God will shut that thing down if that is in His will to do so. And um, I think if that opens, that would be the only abortion clinic working in Wyoming, correct? So we, we definitely want to stand against that um, and um, ask and trust that the Lord will shut it down. Over the next weeks, over the next several weeks, there will be various area ministries that are going to be giving us a brief report like that. And um, we want you to hear those things. You know, there are ministries that are ongoing within our church, small groups, a wanna club, just other things that are happening. Um, but there's also ministries outside of just the local confines of this body that are a part of the larger body of Christ within the region. We want you to know about those, and as the Lord lays those on your heart to be involved, we want you to do so, we want you to support them, and we want to do everything in our power to really support and engage what God is doing in our community and in this region to build his body and to build his kingdom uh, for his glory. So we want you to know these things. Make sure you, you know, just be in prayer for other ministries and be involved as you can as the Lord gives you opportunity. Take your Bibles, if you wouldn't, turn to Romans chapter 14. So we're back in the book of Romans. We took a couple weeks away as we were studying and thinking about Easter and Resurrection Sunday and all the things with that. Now we're going to go back to the book of Romans. We finished chapter 13. We had talked about human government. We had talked about um, the law of love and how we are to live our lives by the law of love. Owe no man anything but to love him. And we looked at that in chapter 13. And now he's really going to build on this issue of love as we look at Christian liberty. The law of love and what this looks like in our life as we govern ourselves before Christ and under His Spirit, through His Word, as we take the Word of God and apply it to the way we live, and we rub shoulders and we work together and we relate to one another. And so we're going to look at that over the next couple of weeks talking about Christian liberty. Now, it's important you make a note. We use this phrase, Christian liberty. But that phrase doesn't appear anywhere in this passage. There's no part of this text where he uses the phrase, Christian liberty. Nevertheless, it is a concept that appears in this text and in others that explains to us the freedom that we have in Christ to govern our own decisions 
in our conscience before the Lord. And what that looks like. And how we then relate to one another in the body of Christ. And even as he builds on in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, with those that are outside of Christ. Because we have a testimony to them. And so we are not to put a stumbling block in front of our neighbor that would cause him to fall. And all those things are very important truths that we see here. So we're going to build and we're going to look at this this morning. We're going to do some introductory work. And um, then we'll come back to it over the next couple of weeks. Take a break from it uh, while Dean Loftus is with us in the beginning of the month. But uh, we'll get through this section of the book of Romans. And then really get ready to finish up the book as we go into the summer. Tonight at Cowboy Church, I'm going to continue the saga where I was last week. I talked to you about Lazarus the calf. So if you want to hear what's going on with Lazarus, come tonight to Cowboy Church. Um, and uh, we'll continue the saga. This week, Lazarus got a mom. So if you want to find out how Lazarus got a mom, come tonight. And uh, that'll be the message tonight. Now, Amy wanted me to clarify something that I did not say last week when I was telling you about the C-section that I performed to get Lazarus out, and that is I did give the mom an epidural before I got my knife out, okay? So just so you know that, ladies, I saw some of you ladies really squirm in there when I was talking about that, so Amy wanted to make sure I clarified that. Okay, we're going to look at chapter 14, Romans chapter 14. Let's start reading in verse 1. We're going to read the first paragraph. And then we'll just jump into this, and we'll go for a while, and then we'll quit. I'll make sure I get you out in plenty of good time today. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything. I know a lot of kids that believe that. They'll eat anything, right? One person believes he can eat anything. While the weak person only eats vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Notice the same word we saw at the beginning of the text. For God has welcomed him. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another one? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. Let's pray. Father, I come before you and I thank you that, Lord, you are able to make us stand. Lord, that you who began a good work in us will carry it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. I thank you, Lord, that you are able. Father, forgive us. Forgive me. For many times, judging, despising, disdaining. Forgive me. Forgive all of us. I pray that, Lord, you would help us, that we would understand what this means, that you, God, have welcomed him. 
And since you have welcomed him, not based on his works, not based on his knowledge, not based on the strength of his faith or the weakness of his faith, but you have welcomed him in Christ. Now, Father God, you have also told us here that we are to welcome one another. Father, open our hearts to receive your word, to listen to your spirit, and allow you to mold our minds and our judgments that we would have a heart that is like yours. And so I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's look at the structure of the text. You noticed when we read here, he says, he begins this, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Welcome him. So that kind of becomes the governing sentence for where we are going in this text. He is telling us as Christians, he is telling us in the church, that we are to welcome into our midst both those who are strong in faith, those who have a strong conscience, and those who are weak in faith, who have a weak conscience. And all through this text, he is going to build on this concept. Beginning in chapter 14, verse 1, and going through 15, verse 7, we have this same thought. That's the entire passage. So when we are talking about Christian liberty here, we're going to be going from Romans 14, verse 1, through 15, 7. We'll also bring into the discussion other places in the Scripture. Most classic place to look will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, when the Apostle Paul deals with the issue of meat that was sacrificed to idols and whether or not a Christian should partake of it. And he builds on those same thoughts in that passage in 1 Corinthians. So that passage will become a parallel to where we're going. Like I said, there are six paragraphs here. If you will notice with me the different things that are in these six paragraphs, these are the main thoughts. Paragraph 1, he tells us as Christians, welcome one another and don't quarrel over opinions. That's the main thought of that paragraph. He builds on that all through the paragraph. He tells us that we are the Lord's, we are not to judge, we are not to disdain. But he tells us there, we are to welcome and we are not to quarrel. We'll talk about that more in depth next week when we think about opinions and we think about quarreling over opinions. Paragraph 2, he is going to tell us there in no uncertain terms, we are the Lord's. We are the Lord's. When you decide what you are going to do, you don't ask in your mind, what do people think I should do? What does my neighbor think I should do? You go to the scripture and you seek the mind of the Lord and you seek to govern your life under the Lord and obey Him. You are the Lord's. And the Lord is able to make a stand, as He says at the end of the paragraph. Here's the next thought that He builds on this. We will all stand before the bar of God's judgment. Now, these thoughts are 
inextricably linked. Each of us will give an account of himself to the Lord. In one sense, where I shepherd you, I will give an account of how I did that. As fathers, you will give an account for your children. Mothers, you will. There's accounting for how we govern ourselves in other people's lives, but essentially it's important to realize this. I cannot govern your life. I cannot make you do anything. And that's not my job. You will give an account for yourself before Almighty God. There is coming a day when each of us will stand there and give an account. He wants us to think about that. He wants us to realize that. So that when we make decisions in our life, how we are going to treat each other and the kinds of things that we are going to approve of, we realize that we are not going to go to heaven and give an accounting to each other. We are going to give an accounting to Almighty God. Next thing he says is this. Since this is true, do not put a stumbling block in front of your neighbor that will cause him to sin. You are free, but don't use your freedom as a license to not only cause yourself to sin, but also to put an occasion to sin in front of your neighbor or someone else in the church. So these are thoughts that are building each of these paragraphs. The next thing he says is our conscience limits our actions. He says if you don't have a conscience that enables you to do something, do not sin against your conscience and just do it anyway. Because whatever is not of faith, he says, were done in good conscience, is to that individual sin. And so he says, since that is the case, conscience limits action. And we need to understand that about each other. That different people are going to have different consciences about different things. That doesn't mean that there are not things that are clearly right and things that are clearly wrong. There are. But within the gamut of life, there are things that are within the conscience. And people will understand these things a little bit different because of their life experience. Next thing that he says in this passage is we have a responsibility. He begins this in chapter 15. Our responsibility is to not just please ourselves. Our responsibility is, first of all, to please God, and secondly, to please others, and then to please self. So this becomes a part of this whole understanding of what it means that we have liberty. My calling in life is not just about how I am going to please self. The pursuit of pleasure. It is how I can please God and how I can please others and cause their growth in Christ. And then notice the bookend. Notice how he ends this section. He began in chapter 14.1. He says, welcome him. And he says at the end of the text, in verse 7, concluding thought, therefore, therefore, 
welcome one another just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That's his concluding thought. So when we come to this, when we think about this, the whole thing is this. We are to welcome one another in Christ as God has welcomed us, and we are to do it for His glory. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he uses that same phrase. He says, whether therefore you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so this is where we're going in this text. These six paragraphs that we see here are going to kind of form our study as we go through these sentence by sentence. There are various themes that come. First thing you notice when we were looking at the first paragraph, he talks about someone who has a weak faith and someone who has a strong faith. The person with the weak faith, in his illustration, eats only vegetables. The person with the strong faith eats anything. Clearly, he's building on dietary restrictions there, coming out of the Mosaic Law. Judaistic thoughts. We'll build on that. But there's a contrast there in these themes between weak faith and strong faith. He also talks about opinions. Now, the, the opinions that he brings up in the passage that were current to their day were food, drink, and religious days. So in one paragraph, in, in look at verse 5, chapter 14. Here's his next illustration. One person values one day as better than another. Another person values every day the same. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So he's there talking about opinions, and the opinions that he talks about in Romans that come out of the first century are opinions about what you eat, what you drink, and religious days or the day that you gather in corporate worship. Those are his illustrations. There are issues in the church today on those issues, but when we talk about opinions, we're not going to be primarily talking about these issues in 21st century America. They're kind of different issues that we face, but nevertheless, they're issues of opinion. They're not issues of doctrine. They're not issues of salvation. They're issues of opinion. What does that mean? And he tells us not to quarrel over them. Next thing he says, don't judge one another. Right? He says, don't judge each other and realize you will be judged by Christ. So he talks about judgment. He talks about judgment a lot in this passage. He talks about causing someone to stumble. He talks about harmony in the body. All these things are important themes that go through this entire passage. So as we talk about this, as we study through the text, we will talk about what does it mean to have a weak faith? What does it mean to have a strong faith? What is he talking about with the conscience? What is he talking about opinions and judgment and all these things? Okay, let's think about the bookend command. He tells us to welcome. Beginning of the section, end of the section. Verse 1, Welcome the one who is weak in faith. And he tells us in that paragraph, paragraph, welcome him as God has welcomed you. And then at the end of it, in verse 7 of chapter 15, he, he ends the section, these bookends, 
Therefore, welcome one another just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. What does it mean to welcome one another? Does it mean that sometime in your worship service you have a minute where you tell everybody, you know, before you sit down after singing that song, make sure you welcome one another. Is that what he's talking about? Clearly that's not what he's talking about. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't do that. Obviously we should. He's talking about something much bigger than that. He's talking to us as Christians and he says, receive one another. Welcome each other. What does this mean? First thing that I want to say is this. This is a grammar lesson for all of you who hate grammar. But it's an important grammar lesson. The word welcome, if you remember, would be a verb. A verb is in action, correct? It's not the subject, part of the predicate. It tells us what we are to do. In the language, there are three parts to every verb in the Greek language. And I want to explain them to you, and I don't want you to get bored, but this is an important lesson. First thing is, this is a present. It is a present verb. There are other ways that we could think about this. You could put a past tense. That would be something that happened previously. You could put a future, which would be something that is yet to happen. But when I say it's present, what does he mean? It's like right now. But it's in the Greek language, it's not only right now, it is right now and every moment that goes from it. So in the Greek language, a present tense is like math, you know this, day from your math with geometry, it's like a line. It's present tense. It's linear action. It's continual. It's not just something you do on Sunday. It's something you do all the time. It is a present tense verb that the Christian's life is to be a life that is continually welcoming. What does this mean, to welcome? We'll come to the meaning of the word welcome in a minute. Notice this, it's also, it's an imperative. An indicative would be like a declaration. An imperative is what? You know, kids, when your mom or dad gives you an imperative, it is a what? Go make your bed. It's like a what? Command. I'm not telling you if you want to. I'm not telling you do it sometime. I'm saying this is my will. It is a command. Make your bed. What he is saying here to us is we have a responsibility to be continually welcoming and God's not giving you an option. God is putting upon us a moral imperative. It's not something you get to choose. In other words, if we disobey it and we die and we stand at the judgment seat of Christ, we're going to give an account for whether or not we did it. It's not an opinion. It is an imperative. If you're sucking wind and you're here today and you know the Lord, God is telling you, you have a moral imperative in your life and that is to welcome each other. 
And then the word middle. Now that's an interesting one. It actually falls in the middle here. What does it mean, middle? Now this is something that is exclusive to the Greek language. No other language has it. In verbs, you know this, you could have an active verb. An active verb would be when you do it. So, Tom ran. He was actively running. Or let's think of another one. An active verb would be, Tim hit the ball. A passive verb would be, the ball was hit by Tim, because the ball was hit. That's passive. A middle is completely different. The middle voice in the Greek language is this. It is reflexive. You do the action, and you bear the result. There's no other language that conveys this thought, but Greeks would understand it. You welcome each other into the welcome. That's what it means. That this is the place, the house, the family where I have been welcomed. And since I have been welcomed, I receive someone else into that welcome, that welcome by God. And so it's reflexive, and it's very intense in the original language. Now, what does it mean to welcome? First thing that I want you to know is this. It doesn't just mean be friendly. It doesn't just mean go to the grocery store and greet people, tell them hi and slap them on the back and say, oh, it's nice to see you. It's not just living in a small town where you know everybody, and we just welcome each other. That's not what he's talking about. This is a specific word in the original language that means receive into the fellowship. To receive someone into the fellowship. Now, of course, Christians should be friendly. It is a blight on our name when we are unfriendly. But he's not just telling us here, be friendly. It's much more than that. He is saying we are to receive into the fellowship of Christ, the body of Christ, those whom Christ has received, which is what? Anybody who is trusted in him. has nothing to do with how much money they make. He talks about that in the book of James. Someone comes into your midst, and they got a lot of good clothes on, and they drove a nice truck, and you say to him, oh, sit here in this nice pew. And then someone else comes in, and they got shabby clothes, and they kind of smell, and they were riding a bike. And you say to him, would you please sit in the back there on the stair? What does he say? You have sinned. Amen. Because you have shown partiality. In other words, we are to welcome everybody. Those whom Christ has received. Synonym is the word greet, comes up all through the scripture. So let's ask ourselves some question. We're to welcome. Who are we not to welcome? You say, well, we're to welcome everybody. You know, we're not. Go with me to 2 John for a minute. Go with me to 2 John. Now, that does not mean that we're not friendly to everybody. We are friendly to everybody. Okay? You're kind. You're compassionate. We reach out to everyone. 
But when we think about this word to welcome in its technical sense, I want you to notice what he says in 2 John. He says in verse 7, Many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and an antichrist. Not the antichrist, but an antichrist. Watch yourselves so you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may win a full reward when you stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not stay in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not teach this, Now, he doesn't say there, if anyone comes to you and just wants to sit in the pew and learn. That's not what he says. He says, if anyone comes to you and does not teach this. In other words, they are coming to you as a teacher to teach something. And they do not carry the core teaching on who Christ is, why he came, and what his death has done for us. If they deny the gospel and the person of Christ and they come to you to teach, what are you to do? Do not welcome him into your home, which is the place of the church in the first century. Don't give him any greeting for whoever greets him or welcomes him or receives him into the fellowship ends up taking part in his wicked works. He's there telling us where to be discerning. When we talk about welcoming people, we're not just talking about friendly. And we're not here in this passage just talking about opinions. We're not to quarrel about opinions. But my friend, we are to stand unabashedly and unashamedly for the truth of who Christ is. And he says, do not receive into the fellowship those who would teach otherwise. Now, There again, that does not mean that the church is not friendly and inviting to those outside of Christ, even those who hold an aberrant teaching in their own mind because it's the way they were raised. You bring them in and we'll teach them, but we're not going to let them get up in the front of you in the pulpit and teach you because it's error. And so he does, don't welcome them as a teacher. Notice that's the word to welcome. So we're seeing that the word welcome means much more than just being friendly. Who are Christians to welcome? Go with me to the little book of Philemon for a minute. This is an interesting book, and I'll just take one illustration of this. Now we see in Romans, we are to welcome even those who are weak in faith, who are new to the faith, who don't look just like us, who have a different experience in life and all those things, but there's really interesting use of the word to receive in the book of Philemon. Let me just give you the story for a minute. Philemon lives in the town of Colossae. We have the book of Colossians. Philemon is a wealthy, wealthy landowner. As a wealthy landowner, he has slaves. That's the reality of the ancient world. 
We're not here to pass judgment on that, to excuse it or anything, but it's the reality. Philemon is a Christian who has a lot of money and he owns other people. One of the men that he owns is a man named Onesimus. For whatever reason, Onesimus runs away. In escaping from slavery, he makes it to Rome. While he is in Rome, he comes in contact with the Apostle Paul. And Onesimus is born again. Knowing the political situation, the way rights worked and everything else, the Apostle Paul knows that for for Onesimus to be able to move ahead in life, he has to deal with the issue at home with Philemon. He can't just believe it didn't or pretend it didn't happen and go live in Carthage. It's going to haunt him. It's going to follow him. So the Apostle Paul sends Onesimus from Rome to Colossae with this letter. In this letter, the Apostle Paul tells Philemon, we're on close terms. I'm going to come and see you real soon. I'm sure I'm going to get out of prison and I'm going to visit. I'm sending Onesimus to you. When he left, he was unprofitable to you. He probably stole from Philemon. It was a bad situation. I am sure Onesimus is not real excited about seeing Philemon again for the first time. You ever been there, done that kind of thing? I'm sure he's swallowing pretty hard. And Paul tells him, receive him. Welcome him. Welcome him as a brother. He is now profitable to you, and I want him back. That's what Paul says. He is profitable to me, and I want him to help me. But in order for that to happen, you need to set him at liberty. That's what the whole letter is about. He says, Welcome. Who are we to welcome? even people that wrong us. Think about that. The church is to be the kind of place that when somebody rips you off in the community, we are willing to forgive them and open that door to them to come to Christ and to be a part of us. He's not just talking about friendly here. He's getting right down into the heart of our daily life and telling us people are more important to me than your petty opinion, than your petty grievance. So somebody wronged me. Am I going to hold it against them forever? What did the Lord tell me to pray? Forgive him as you've forgiven me. So we're to welcome. Okay.
It got quiet in here. Whew. I don't think you were asleep. I think you're squirming like me. Okay, here's some opening considerations on Christian liberty. When we think about Christian liberty, we're thinking about two things. These doctrines are very importantly delineated out of the Protestant Reformation. One is this idea of the priesthood of the believer, and one is personal soul liberty. What those two doctrines basically mean is this. They're big terms to mean this. You don't need a priest to access God. There is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. And you go directly to God, and you pray directly to God, and you relate directly to God, and you will directly give an account to him, and you are responsible to him. You're not ultimately responsible to me, right? No, no, in no way. I'm just one of the flock. I'm a pastor. That's my gift. That's my calling. But I'm just one of you, and I'm accountable as well. We're just in this mess together. We'll all give an account to the Lord, and we will all individually give our own account to the Lord. And so you have before the God a priesthood responsibility and a liberty before God to govern your life based on your conscience. That's why we don't have some document like the Word of Wisdom or whatever it's called. Tells you you can't drink coffee and you can't do this and you can't do that. We don't have that. I'm not slighting that. I'm not like stomping on that. I'm just saying that's why we don't have that. Why? Because you can decide how much coffee you should drink. Right? You can decide what you should eat. Okay. Freedom of conscience, then, we're talking about. The freedom of conscience. Okay. What constitutes an opinion? This is important we get this in our thinking as we go into this. When he says, don't just quarrel over opinions, you can go back to Romans. Go back to Romans, chapter 14. And we'll bring all this to a conclusion here in just a minute. What constitutes an opinion? Here's what an opinion is. Now, here, the illustrations are what you eat, what you drink, and what day you worship. But what he's talking about is applications of Scripture to daily life. And that these applications of Scripture in your life and in your home will all be made in the context of your experience, your past teaching, and then the conscience that that creates. So your experience in life the teaching you have had in your past is going to form your constant conscience which will create in you an opinion. That's what we're talking about. These opinions are manifold. We'll talk about some illustrations of it in another week, but you know the issues that we think about with opinions today are not really things like drinking and eating, although maybe that's getting a little bit bigger today with movements like veganism and other things becoming big in our culture. Um, we need to understand that. But nevertheless, these opinions are manifold. They're just daily life. It's what you do in your home. It's, it is the kind of things you eat. It is the kind of things you drink. It's the kind of places you go. It's the radio station you listen to. It's all those kind of things, and they all are applications of Scripture that you make under God in your conscience.
That's an opinion. So when we talk about religious belief, we are talking about a conviction that is accountable to God alone. It is resistant to compulsion. And then we're going to talk about a lot about conscience. I'm going to skip that. We'll come back to another. What freedom is not? Let's just talk about freedom and then we'll be done. I love that we live in the United States of America. Amen? Where we have freedom. What a blessing. The freedom that we enjoy in America is parallel to the freedom that we have in Christ. It obviously grows out of our founders' understanding of Scripture. Not just the Enlightenment, but of the Scripture. When we tell you you are free. I want you to understand there's some things that does not mean. Here's the first thing it does not mean. It does not mean that I am free from the consequences for my actions. It does not mean that. You are free to eat Twinkies every day for breakfast. You are free. You are free to cook everything you cook in Crisco oil that kills flies. You're free. You can do it if you want. But you know what? You may die of a heart attack at the age of 42. Right? You're free. If you want to do it, go for it. There is nothing in the Scripture that says you can't. And there's nothing that the church will do to say you can't. If I come to breakfast, I may not eat a Twinkie with you. Don't hold it against me. But you are free to do it. But don't think that freedom means there are no consequences. Second thing is this. Freedom does not mean that every choice is equal. It's kind of almost the same thought here. There's good choices, there's bad choices, there's better choices, there's excellent choices. So when I say you're free, you're free. But I'm not telling you, choose the worst thing. Freedom does not mean that every choice is equal. Better choices. For instance, Jesus says of Mary... Remember the story with Martha and Mary? Jesus says, let her alone. She made a better choice. She made a better choice. Now, let me explain the story. And I don't got long to do this. You know the story. Mary and Martha, home of Lazarus, Jesus is coming to dinner. Jesus has been walking all day. He's tired. He comes into the house. He's going to sit down, have a conversation. He says to Mary, you know, she's going to put out the full spread. He said, or she says to Martha, one thing is good enough, just give me a snack. I'm tired. Just give me a snack. That's kind of my paraphrase. One thing is good enough. She puts out everything. And then she's bent out of shape that her sister won't help her clean up. Jesus is not saying it's wrong, ladies, to have a nice meal. That you should just sit and talk. That's not what he's saying there. 
many other times Jesus went to places where he had a feast and somebody had to do it. Somebody had to work hard to do it and he was thankful for it. In this situation, Jesus is probably tired. He's just like, all I want is a snack. I'm ready for bed. She made the better choice. Not every choice is equal. In Philippians chapter 1, he says, choose the things that are excellent. Choose the things that are excellent. What does freedom mean? And I'll close. Here's what freedom means. Someone is not dictating the choice you make. There is no constraint. That's all it means. In the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, a man goes out on the Sabbath and he picks up sticks to build a campfire. The people bring him to Moses and they say, what should be done to him? He broke the law. Moses says, well, I'm not quite sure. Let me pray. You know what God told him to do to that man? Who picked up sticks to build a fire. You know what God told him to do? Stone him. That is compulsion. There was no option. In the nation of Israel, Sabbath day, compulsion. In the new age of grace, the church, Sunday. You know what? Do whatever's in your heart. Do whatever's in your heart. If every week of every month it's in your heart to go to the lake, do it. You are free. Completely free. Does it mean it's a good choice? No. You'll probably lose your kids because they'll see what's important to you. It says something about what you love. You can do whatever you want on Sunday, and you know what? You're free. But you know what? One day, you will stand before God, and he will say to you, why was going to the lake every Sunday more important to you than worshiping me with my people? Was it more important to go to the lake and lose your kids? And you'll give an account. You're free. But, a, but I want you to notice, freedom means, number one, accountability. Accountability. No one's going to make you. You will give an account. Number two, it means responsibility. We have a responsibility to others. My friend, you're free. You have freedom in Christ. No one compels it. But you will give an account. Let's pray. We thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for this passage. And as we go through it, I pray that you would help us, that we, we would understand, Lord, that you're not about just a list of rules that we are to keep to govern ourselves to bring glory to you. But we are about a heart that seeks you, that loves you, that loves your people. Help us, Lord, to govern our lives by that principle, the law of love. And so I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song together?
choices, decisions to make, Lord, and Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would just help us to make wise decisions, to choose that which is excellent in life, knowing, Lord, that one day we will stand before you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be able to know what we should do at each and every moment, to look towards you for wisdom, and Lord, that we would do what honors you. Lord, we thank you for this day. We pray, Lord, that you would just lead and guide us as we leave today, in Jesus' name, amen.